Hello, and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Stephen Titmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resonant Advisor. Our guest this week is Kerry Chandler. Kerry has made some of the most emotionally charged house music ever. That's partly due to his skill as a producer, but also to do with where he gets his inspiration. His music comes from a remarkably personal place, because both happiness and personal tragedy inspire his records. He's about to reach his 25th year in dance music, so we discuss the experiences that have shaped the life of a house music legend. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Kerry Chandler is up next. A lot of artists that come into this interview situation say they're inspired by their parents' record collection. But your father's record collection seemed to be something quite special, something out of the ordinary. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My dad is a, a DJ. He still is a DJ. When I grew up, that's all I, I remember, just going through his records. You know, and it, The funny thing is, I wasn't supposed to be playing his records. So when he would leave home, I would actually make little piles of records I wanted to hear. And either A, I would request it, and if he wasn't coming home soon enough, I'd find a way to turn everything on and play them myself. And, you know, and, and they, were just, they were just amazing. You know, because I always knew like the artist names after a while of what I was looking for. And I always looked for like Lionel Smith or one of these things, you know, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire stuff. And, you know, cool in the gang because as well as my dad's friends surfaced the same thing. You know, I, I got to see like Uncle Pick, you know, this is his new record. I want to check it out. So, yeah. What age were you when you first started digging through your dad's collection? Oh, God, maybe 10, 10 or 11. I, I, I thought my dad was the coolest dude on the planet. And everybody seemed to love my dad for some reason. Like every, everybody was like, "Where's your dad?" No, no. And it was just like you know, I was just following him around and watching him. I was like, "This is interesting." And it just felt, you know, like yeah, I, I loved you know what I heard and what I saw him doing. And it was just it was it kind of turned into a family business after a while. So your dad was a local New Jersey DJ. Um, yeah. Did he play clubs or radio yeah, stations? He, or? Played, he played both. He has an amazing ra- radio voice. He. He, I mean, he's the deepest voice. Like, I mean, you wouldn't want him calling you, <laughs> like, come into the house. It's like, oh, there's, there's a problem. But he, he's, you know, he's, he was always into that. He did a couple radio stations back home as well. But he, he did a lot of different clubs around, you know, New York and New Jersey. And that, that's where I really got to really see things when I could go out when I was, you know, I always get to, to see him do festivals and things like, um, you know, early sets early on you know and after a while he actually had me when he 
finally figured out, I, you know, I, I could DJ. He actually used to bring me in to let him warm up. You know, just like I just like warm up for him. They stand me on a crate. And I knew the records because I've gone through them. This is going back to the record collection question. And they just hand me over records and I'd beat match everything. And that was the that was the interesting thing because a lot of them back then, they didn't do that. I, I was beat matching. And I mean, it was tight. I'd figure out drum rolls and where things sped up and, and slowed down, especially for disco records. And it, it just, it, it became, a, I was an upset, it was obsessed with it. It was an obsession and I, and I had to know every piece of the record and all the breakdowns and where it went and how to extend them. And it just, it became my, and every summer especially, that's all I wanted to do, just listen to records and understand how they were made. And, and, and I got very, very lucky to go into the studio and watch some of these records being created and my dad used to have people come over like you know Sharon Red doing performances and you know at the club and all these other people and I always got to see you know a lot of people perform live over the tracks you know and I was like wow this is cool and to this day I still do it just because I enjoy you know seeing that that live part of something. So that was a serious musical education from your oh, yeah, father. Absolutely, it felt it felt normal. I wanted to do it. I mean, we it's part of my my life as a child. I mean, we always have like parties for no reason, just especially on the front lawn. It was like I thought that was like just it. It was like but we we grew up in a interesting place. It was just. A bunch. Of, we were living like the projects, but he'd take speakers outside and hang like horns on the fire escape, and that the whole neighborhood just became a block party, and nobody cared. They just had fun, and that was just a normal thing yeah, for you a as a kid. Normal thing. It just like just because. So he just thought, oh, it's, it's not raining outside. Let's just have a party, all of us outside. And that was it. So almost, it was almost predestined that you would become a DJ. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing it must have been. <laughs> yeah. so, so when did you start playing a musical instrument? Oh, I was about maybe 10 or 11 years old. And just like any other kid, I don't want to actually be in the class. I would love the music anyway, but I went to um, the school and I was like, okay, what instruments are there I could take up, you know, that were left pretty much. Because by the time I figured out you can actually take music class, you know, most of the good instruments are gone. So when I went in, there were only like three left. One was flute. I'm like, I'm not doing flute. Timpani. What am I going to do? Like bang a, no, it's not going to work. And the, the third one, which actually I stuck with and I love still to this day, I still play, is uh, upright bass. It was it was crazy trying to bring that thing back and, home, back and forth home. But yeah, I, I stuck with it. And my best friend, Doc, which is like, we grew up together since we were like four years old. He became the bouncer at Zanzibar. So to, to kind of tell you how big he is, it's like trying to walk through this door. He has to duck down. So he'd always carry my bass home, you know. So that, thank God that was my best friend. So it was always fun. We'd walk home. He'd carry it back, you know, back and forth, he'd, you know, get ready to go to school. Here's Doc again. we go walking back and forth, this ridiculous thing. Like, it's taller than me. But I, I loved it. I, I, you know, I still to this day, I have a, a set of them, you know, and yeah. That's the first instrument I took up, you know, acoustic bass. And, you know, you mentioned that your dad was surrounded by producers and yeah. musicians and singers. Yeah. When did you think, okay, now I want to record some of this music. I want to start the, producing. The first time I went to Mickey El Muhammad's studio, which is the one of the writers for Cool and the Gang. And I'm so used to like a two-channel mixer. We had used to have a Clubman one-on-one, -on -one, Meteor. It's like big wood box. 
with two, I mean, long faders. These faders are like, you know, the size of my hand, like long, big, you know, very minimal, you know, just like Phono, Phono, maybe the newer model had like, you could switch it to line and a big cross fader. And, you know, just a, a couple set of turntables. That's the mixer I was used to. So when I walked into the studio and I saw, you know, their mixer, and it was like, that's a mixer. I was like, that's a mixer? That, the thing the size of this wall is a mixer? You know, so I, I was just, I was fascinated with it and watching how they track things. And I, I got to sit in on sessions and watch how they recorded things and, and learn how to, you know, use tape machines and, just all the instruments and the inputs and all the preamps and all these things. And I was like, wow, this is... And then at the end, learned how they actually mixed all this stuff. And after a while, I became an intern at you know a television studio. And then I went into a recording studio and did the same thing. So by the time I was 14, 15, I was really like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. Was it more as an engineer first that you started off rather yeah. than a producer? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I found myself on the weekends... Um, DJing in clubs, and what would happen is that I would make edits of these things. I used to sit and splice tape, like, you know, just making tape edits and things I could actually play in the club and, you know, just doing overdubs of things, and I'd put them all on reel, and I'd take them out to the club to play. At one point, we made this song up called Drink On Me, and I played at Club America, and Club America was a very interesting club. Me and uh, Johnny Dangerous... And I am Johnson. And what would happen is that during the course of a night, there were two levels to this club. The dancers would be on one level, on the on like on the ground floor. Like it's almost like a basement. And it, it was amazing down there. They had a Richard Long system and they had 30-inch woofers all the way around the room. These louver horns, amazing system. And they had another section where it was just bar and like I would say suit and tie people. And they would always go downstairs and they would try to, you know, just stare at, you know, the dancers like they were zoo animals. And it was just like no good for anybody. So Teole, which which is one of the dancers, Teole Hassan Brown, that, that's the guy. He was, you know, really there. And he had the crews and everybody, and, you know, powder on the floor, typical. We made this thing up so that we would have the bartender give away free drinks and the, the drink of choice was sex on the beach. So what we did was, anytime they heard, the bartenders heard the song coming, and I thought the floor was getting too cramped with suit and tie people and not you know leaving the dancers alone, I'd play Drink On Me. This red light would come on and start spinning. And all of these suit and tie people, you know, cheap, you know, but, you know, trying to get women or whatever, they run, I mean, like run back upstairs, across the you know steps, up the gate, across this drawbridge thing, and they just all stay upstairs and mind their business, you know, having their free drinks and leave the dancers to it. So that's what the uh, the reference to Sex yeah, on the Beach is see, in that record. Yeah, can have Sex on the Beach twice, so we're giving away, so they're giving women, you know, free drinks. And it was our, it was our inside joke. Amazing. Yeah. But one thing about that record, actually, I do think that it's almost like a template which you did over the next 20 years. You know, it's got the disco sample in it, which mm -hmm. is obviously a huge thing for you. But it also really stands up well as a production. It still sounds really strong, you well, know. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I just wondered, you know, even back then, it seems like clearly you were putting a lot of emphasis into the science of production and the sound of it. Would yeah. that be true? Like yeah, absolutely. I mean, sound was, I mean, at the time, the tools we had, I mean, I had to try to make the best of what we were doing. Funny enough, that song was actually made on a four track. 
Yeah, so it's like one of my quick edits before we actually got to the club. I, I gotta say, I've had a different way of running things. Most of the stuff I tried to run live, like MIDI tracks live, and anything that needed to be put to tape, I would have on tape. Even the studio that, that I was in, it wasn't really, you know, until they really started buying the gear I was asking for, it was really kind of just, you know, simple makeshift stuff. Until they really, really, you know, began, you know, trusting in what I said, they, you know, then they really started buying the gear and the things that I knew we needed, and then it became a real, you know, studio. But at the time, it was just one of those things where it's an afterthought, you know, it was a guy you know, who ran an insurance company, funny enough. And he says, he, you know, he wanted to get into music and he had like, you know, some basic gear, you know, but once he saw things were taking off and like, oh, wow, this is, there's something to this. And, you know, that that's what happened. And um, I suppose a really other quite interesting part of your career, which perhaps people might not know so much about, is your early hip hop stuff as uh, oh, Art of Origin. Yeah, Art of Origin, yeah. yeah wow, yeah. you know this stuff. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, just tell us about that. Oh, that that's even funnier. Where I grew up, you can actually do both easily. You could do house, disco, hip-hop, R&B. Like, you would play all of that in one night, just, just as how it was back in the, uh, the 80s where we grew up. And there was just one of those things. You do the break dance, you, you, you know, hip-hop paint. You, all, all of our friends from school, everybody was a, was a hip-hop rapper or something, break dancer or something. It had something to do with any type of culture. And it, they just went hand in hand. You could play everything in one night. And what happened was I did both. Since I was DJing on the weekends, I used to play house all the time because I was around the corner from, I mean, the same guys who owned Zanzibar owned Club America, and they owned another club called Club 88. So we'd all interchange between the clubs. And, you know, I was just, I was a resident. It, it didn't matter. They just stuck me in anywhere I needed to go. And I had to know lighting and sound and everything. So it, it just didn't go in there and you're like, oh, I'm a resident DJ and I show up and just DJ. You had to maintain the sound. You had to maintain the lights. You had to do everything. You didn't just go in and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to bring some. No. I had a time card. You had to go in and punch in, literally, and just, you know, take care of everything in the club. And if you didn't, they, they'd fire you. They would just like, okay, we'll get somebody else to replace you, you know, whatever. You know, in saying all of this, it was just a combination of everything. You could play everything and do everything. And we had a, a really good in at a radio station. And I just met Merlin Bob. Merlin Bob was at BLS. And so was Naeem Johnson. And BLS was like the, the premier station besides Kiss back in the States. And you would listen to someone's dance show all the time. And at the same time, we had Red Alert and all these other people and Molly Moore and the, we just we listened to everything. We just loved it, you know. Even on like you know other stations like WHBI, and it was just it was a culture. We loved just music. We could play everything. We could all intertwine with each other. Each other's house parties were hip hop and and rap, house and disco, anything. And what happened was I had a crew, just like every other crew does, and we all did battles. And I was you know, and funny enough, my name back then was Scratchmaster Chaos. So that's that's where chaos came from. And then uh, it took it even further. So Scratchmaster 2 just carried chaos. And then we just took out took out the rest and just put down Chaos 623. And then after a while it was carry chaos. But when I started the rap stuff off, it was really, really interesting because the house stuff that I was doing actually just got signed to Atlantic and Profile, funny enough. Dan Charnas was at Profile. And he was trying to get us signed with, with Profile. He left Profile and went with Def Jam and Def, you know, like Def, what did they call Def America at the time, which was Rick Rubin's label. 
And he took the project over to them, and he was like, yeah, let's do it. So we, we were signed by Rick Rubin over there. So at the same time, I have one career going, which was house, and I have a, a completely different career going, which was hip-hop. And it was, it was absolutely hilarious because everybody that knew I did house music had no idea I was doing hip-hop, and the same vice versa. The whole hip-hop crowd, they were like, you did house? So it, it was absolutely hilarious to me. Yeah. And, yeah. and why did you, I guess, eventually start putting more of your time and effort into, into house music? It was one of those things that felt more like me. And, it, and the big epiphany actually came to me because I felt like I could release myself in house music. I had a, a my, my girlfriend, Tracy, which is really sad. She was murdered at uh, Club Zanzibar and somebody like raped her and, and, and it, we, were, we were supposed to get married. And it changed my life completely. And she loved house music. She absolutely like loved it. She played me things that I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. And where are you finding this stuff? And I'm the DJ. I'm like, where are you finding this stuff at? And I just remember just how much she enjoyed it. And I had to get it off of my mind. I really did. And losing her was, was, was hard. It still is hard. I still think about her a lot. And that's what Get It Off was. It was really a song called Get It Off My Mind. And I put a lot of the elements of what I felt into that song. Like, it is a part that goes, you are so vicious. And that was talking to her murderer. There's another part is that, that goes, now is the time, now is the time. It's like, now is the time for me to get it off my mind. And there's a signature tone that runs through it where it just sounds like the record's being ripped off. Like, just rip. That's how my life felt. My entire groove changed like my entire everything changed and it, it switched and it, and I just felt better after that I, I felt at peace like I could actually release myself with with house music I, I could do all sorts of things with hip-hop I love the beats I love the, the dirty grimy you know I, I never did hip house I never did any of that stuff I always loved one way or the other either way it had to be deep it had to be like raw that's just how I was I was I was in a mindset I loved deep stuff like i just love breakdowns of everything i love like dark beats and heavy you know bass lines and that's what it was and i found myself gravitating more towards the house because i could release you know what i thought in my mind and as rap stuff progressed it used to be party stuff but when it started becoming more west coast based and a little more violent that's not me i'm 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 a peaceful kind of dude i don't want to carry around guns and all this kind of stuff. And, and there was at one point that I was hanging out with my partner at the time, Chino, and it was my daughter's first birthday. And there was a shootout, you know, and I was sitting in the car right next to Chino. And it just, that was my wake up call. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I said, I, I have no reason doing this. This isn't my lifestyle. I don't want to have to worry about people running around trying to shoot me over some, some rap. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. I had nothing to do with it. I mean, these two, two guys come up out of nowhere with ski mask on, talking about, you know, get out the car. Let's, you know, let's, let's do this or whatever. And I thought it was a joke. I mean, the gun didn't even look real. I thought it was a joke. So I get out the car. I'm like, all right, you got this. It's good. You know, they wanted Chino. And they just, I walked back. I don't even know how I got out of it, away from it. Chino just started speeding away with the car. They shot that car up like it had holes in it. And if anybody else was sitting in that car, they would have they bought it. And the crazy thing was the only thing that saved him was 
one bullet came. I mean, the bullets, when we, we, we finally caught up, the bullets went all the way through the car. Like, it was through it. Like, it, you could see, like, right through it. The thing that saved him, it hit the emergency brink and, and just ricocheted up through the roof. That's it. I was like, no. That's, I, this is, I love music, but this isn't the way I want to do it. And I, and I really, after that, I just said, no. I'm doing, I'm doing house. I'm not playing this game. I have a daughter. I'm not trying to, you know, find out. Was was that the reality of hip hop in the nineties, or was it you know obviously Newark, you know, is perhaps you know sort of a, I, the, a little dodgy area, or, it, or, or had it changed? Was it was the music a part it was, of that? It was going into that, yeah, and that's what I felt. And it's like that wasn't me anymore. I was, I was a different person. I was peaceful. Hmm. I didn't have to be more than what I was. Yeah, I grew hmm. up in the ghetto, and yeah, I, I've been around the surroundings, but I, I wanted better yeah. for, for myself and my family. I didn't want to have to just stay in that mentality because eventually something would have happened mm. because, I mean, it's all about, you know, your rep and, and what you could pull off and, you know, you, you don't, you, you're not going to be punked out. And, you know, I, I had that mentality. I didn't, I didn't like the person I was, you know, we, we'd always, you know, hang out and, you know, have, have some drinks and stuff. I never did any crazy drugs or anything, but it was always that, you know, based like that it was always, all my friends had guns. Mm. All my friends had drugs. All my friends were drug dealers. And, you know, so that only led me in the one, one place. And I was like, no, I'm either going to do that or I'm, I'm going to do something, you know, that I, I really love as much as music. So I'm, but I'm going to do it more in a positive light. And, that, and since then, after that, I said to myself, I'm never going to make a record that I can't play for my grandmother. And that was, that was the truth of it. And it's... Uh Funny you mentioned your grandmother because you actually made a record with your grandfather a few oh, yeah. years later. Yeah, yeah which is, which is, is crazy. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and then I loved you. He, I mean, my, my, I love my. I miss my grandfather a lot because of that. And he was he's absolutely one of my inspirations. Hmm. Yeah. Was your grandfather into house music when you was doing that stuff? Yeah, you know what the funny thing is, my favorite time with him was one of my one of my birthday parties we threw, and my grandfather was the host. And it was the coolest party I think I've ever had. Just just having him there. The minute he got on stage, it was so charismatic and everybody wanted to see him. And he actually did like she's crazy on stage and everybody just ran up to the front just to see who he was because they didn't realize that's who he was until he started doing it. And it was just like, oh, this is crazy. And then it was just like Elias play, you know, singing Follow Me and, and Didi was there singing My My Lover. And they were dancing on stage together. It was just, it was hilarious. But it was like one of those things where, wow, this is, I actually get to, you know, do this with my grandfather. You know, so yeah, it was, it was absolutely wonderful. Where was that party? It was actually in East Orange. It was a place called Scandals. Yeah. It was Scandals. That play. It was <laughs> Scandal, this place. One thing actually, like we've mentioned Zanzibar a few times. It's one of those clubs that, you know, I'm sure many dance music fans have heard about. But perhaps it, it might be cool to kind of hear what made that place so special, you know, because it, it, it seemed like it was very different to the New York scene and the Chicago scene. It kind of had its own thing going on. Yeah, well, a lot of it, I mean, Hippie Torellis was there actually first. I mean, he really, he kind of broke it. It used to be Abe's Disco, if you can imagine that. It was a disco tech. And um, yeah, Hippie kind of broke it in. And then uh, Tony came in after, and then he had the radio show. But the, the difference between was Tony was breaking an artist. It was, it was a lot of vocal-based, gospel-based stuff. And in an area like where we came from, we all had hope, and we all had belief, and we, we all had, you know, family ties with each other. You know, we all wanted to go in and just, this, this was our sanctuary. 
This is our place where we can just forget about what was outside for a minute and just go party, you know, and just let the music, you know, take everything away. And you, you didn't want to leave, you know. And Tony was like the pretty much the preacher, the, the, the guy driving the sermon, you know. And my favorite thing was to go around the corner. You know, I played around, like America was around the corner. We closed about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And I used to take, like, a cab back in the morning or, or a bus back with my, my crates or I'd leave them at the club and just walk around the corner and go, go hear Tony. That, that was my ritual. I had to go in the middle of the floor and just listen. Then I'd go up to the booth, give him a big hug, and then go back on the floor and listen some more. I used to sit right up in the basements. That was my favorite thing. I loved the way it, it felt. It's just like that room and watching the dancers and the way it went. It, it was just one of those things where it was like a learning curve. You know, and then when he would do the radio shows, we all taped it religiously. And then you take the tape in to go to Moving Records, which is up the street. Like, what is this? What the heck is he playing? What is this? Do you have it? And Abby would go, oh, yeah, it's right there. That's the new blah, blah, blah. And this is this one. And this, you know, and that was it. It's just one of those things where you could actually go and maybe a week or two later, it'd be sitting there on the shelf. And then after a while, all of these people were people that we all knew. You know, and all these people that, you know, he break, he broke. If it wasn't for Tony, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You know, because he's the guy that really broke everything through him, Camacho, of Basil, Disciple. I mean, it, the whole crew, Wild Pitch crew, we used to do all the parties together. All of these people were just, we were all like this. We were really, really tight. Yeah, yeah you, you can't really talk about house music without Tony Humphreys, really. Let's, oh, be, no, let's be honest. For, for our area, absolutely no. There, would, there wouldn't be any of us without, without Tony for the, for the definite, like Jersey Sound, Blaze and all of it. Forget it. He broke every vocal house record there was and made sure it was broken. Like he, and then what happened was after he played it for a while, he'd bring the artist in and showcase them. Like, okay, fine. Here's Bonwa. I'm going to play this for like a few weeks. And then now, now here they are. You know, Burrell Brothers, same thing. Anybody who, who he was playing, you you can guarantee that in a few weeks, you, you'd look for it, really look for it. Like, I want to see this person perform. And we'd all just run to the stage when it was time. And then you'd run back, you know, and you just hope you didn't miss it. That performance element from in dance music, it, it's not something that's necessarily really there, especially with vocal singers nowadays. Is, oh, is, it's is that, tricky, yeah. yeah. Is that something you miss, perhaps? In some ways, I mean, that's, that's why I ended up doing a few projects. I did a hologram project just because of that. And I, I got a lot of singers together because of that. Because you don't see that element in clubs at all anymore. It's much easier to just have DJs row after row. But I guess some clubs found it cheaper and easier rather than paying a performer for 20 minutes, a, a couple grand, just pay another DJ and just let it go. And then they thought, like a, a few times it would break up the night, especially with the younger crowd that just wanted to dance, they didn't care about any of that. So what I did was I found a way to, with the holograms anyways, to incorporate it in where the newer generation would be like, what is that? You know, and this thing with just apparition appears on stage as I'm mixing because it was just seamless. And I can get away with it and during the course of a night, just play one. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a I don't know, Kenny Bobian standing on stage singing. And then it would just go, you know, he'd fade in like, you know, like it was Star Trek and then fade away again. You know, so I, I, I love the idea of also like bringing something brand new and different into a club environment. And yeah, like your, some of your setups are pretty complicated. You've just mentioned, you know, you've performed yeah. setups with holograms in them yeah. and, you know, you've had keyboards and all manner of things. Yeah. What's the most complicated setup you've, you've run with? There must be some pretty outlandish oh, ones. Wow, yeah. Most of the time it's either with like the live band. And, and I mean, the, one of the 
most complicated ones. I've done maybe for Heineken in South Africa, and I had the holograms, I had the laser harps, I had like all the, the band stuff, I had live stuff going. And that took a minute to actually set up, and they had a, an amazing staff to make sure everything was right. And we, we, we did sound checks and setups all day long to make sure it ran right. That was probably the most complicated thing to do on the opposite side of the planet, trying to coordinate everything and, and making sure everything was there. You know, so we were beta testing stuff like over Skype, you know, but it all it all ended up working out really well in here. Yeah. Amazing. So perhaps to go back to one of the, like your early tracks that is, you know, hugely influential still today, um, the Atmosphere EP, track oh, one. Okay. Phil, it's still a record that you hear out a lot, it's still a record that people imitate a lot. Can you just tell us about how you made that track and how that came around? Well, funny enough, it was supposed to be for Sybil Jeffries originally. And Jerome, he was, he was over at Atlantic, Jerome Sidnall, which is still like one of my best friends, period. He wanted to put together an EP, and he really wanted it raw. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that, these are guys from like major labels. I mean, Jerome was at Atlantic, Merlin Bob was at Atlantic, and then they started doing East West and all this stuff. But we were all at Shelter and Nell's and all these things, so these really underground clubs, and it had like, you know, commercial dance music but they always wanted something raw like even when I did the theme song for Shelter it was like you know okay let's make a song about the club simple don't do anything crazy just do a nice four track raw thing and that's what this thing was supposed to be but originally the vocal was supposed to be from Sybil Jeffries and it was supposed to be for her album but Jerome said no he said let's just put this thing together and put it out as like some dub some real dark crazy dubs. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's go for it. And maybe about a week later, gave it to him, and he put it out as a bootleg in Japan first. And that was really odd because it was something called the 007. It didn't even have names on it. It just said like, you know, one, two, three, and four on it. It's just some weird white label. And that was it called 007. So then Freddie Sannon from Shelter got an idea. He's like, wait, what is this thing? Why isn't this out like properly? And he says, I want it. Can I have it? I said, well, you got to talk to Jerome. And that was it. And it just took off from there. It's just this weird underground track I did that, you know, just just found legs of its own and took off. And you mentioned Club Shelter there, um, yeah. another, you know, really important U.S. club. Again, it's perhaps one that people might not know so well. Um, what was so great about Shelter? Shelter was exactly what it sounded like. It's, it's, it's a shelter for the meek and distant franchise, as my father would say coming into a place where you can be free. Literally, you can go in there and they don't, nobody cares about who you are or where you come from. You kind of go in there and you just lose your mind. You go in there, the system was ridiculous. I mean, they're like four huge stacks of like Richard Long just like pounding away, but in, in the cleanest, baddest way you can imagine. And I mean, the, the booth setup was just like the best on the planet. Like you... You can go in there, you can just create. That's how that booth was. And in fact, when I went in, I actually did shelter in the shelter. I designed it in there. I made that track in the shelter. Really simple, just put my drums up, tuned everything up with my 909, and just put my, my modules in. I did a quick sequence and said, here's the levels, this is what I need. And I'm going back to the studio, I'll mix this, and I'll be back, I'll be back next week, it'll be done. That was it. So actually made the track in the club. Yeah, I love doing that. Matter of fact, the the one of the one my favorite ones I did was um 
let me see, it was art department, and it was this thing I did for Cape Simcoe. And I actually did it in one of my other favorite clubs, which is um, Bob Beeman in Germany. And the same thing, I walked in there, and I listened to the system, and me and the other Dave were re really cool. And I said, you know what? I want to mix this in this room. I want to actually get the levels and everything in here. And I just started to track, and we are just there, just kind of going across things. And we, we'd run out to the middle of the room. This is good. Yeah, take that. No, this is, be this is better. And go back and forth. And um, yeah, I just made it, made it right in the club, came back, gave it to the boys, and they put it out. That's amazing. No, but it's my favorite. I mean, I, even with my, my setup at home, I have club monitors. I have different monitors, but on one wall, there's a system. Like, you know, I have a Vertex system and folded horns and everything. So when I turn it on, I can actually hear what it sounds like in a club because that's the best vibe for me. You're making club music. You want to see what it sounds like. You know, I don't, I don't care which monitors you have. For some reason, the depth of it isn't going to come across the same way. You want, you want to feel it pounding. You want to hear what it sounds like in the top. And if something's too loud or too low, you'll know right away. Yeah, why emulate something when you can do it for yeah. real, I guess. Yeah, exactly. If, if I had enough space, yeah, but absolutely. And that's still, that's the first thing, you know, I, I look for. Yeah. Another one of my favorite tracks from you, and I'm not sure if this is true, is um, Inspiration. How long did it take you to make that? Was it, was it an hour I read? At least, it, it, it was the, the quickest song. I mean, the background for that was really, same thing. I, one of the first times I, I met Arnold Jarvis, and he came into the studio. And he just kind of looked around. It looked like Ministry of Sound, my, one of my studios, like at the time. And I had this studio set up in the middle of the room, like the, the gear. And it was just a wall of speakers. It was like a wall of sound. That's why I used to call it the wall of sound, the purple wall of sound. He came in and he just kind of looked. He said, this is crazy. And I, I gave him a mic and we just started messing around. And I had my keyboards there. And he, he just came from a hospital. And he, he saw his friend. His friend was dying of like cancer. And he was just like, you know, he was telling me the story about how inspired he was. His friend is still happy and making jokes and cracking. He says his friend was so inspirational to him. And that, you know, he would, you know, he was really surprised about how, you know, happy he was still optimistic about it. And this man is dying. And I was like, wow, that's a deep story. And, then, you know, we just started talking a bit. And, you know, he wrote like four or five words on his hand, literally. Like, that was it. He just, and then I just made a basic track. It was inspiration, like the the rough version of it, just like you know some basic chords, and he just stood in the middle of the room, started singing, and he just he came back to me, and says, "Can you play this with me live?" And I said, "I haven't done that in a while, but yeah, why not? Let's let's just do it. Let's just you know have a take of it." I striped some tape because you had to stripe tape for as long as you could, and I had another reel, maybe it was about eleven minutes left on the tape, so I striped it all the way to the end, wound it back, set everything off, hit play played piano on it, he started singing. That was it, one take. That was, that was it, that was exactly how he sang it, one tape through, and, I, and I, we just, I ran it back, I listened to it, EQ'd it a little bit, and I said, whoa, I think we've got something, this is cool, and we kind of sat back, and I was like, oh, I need a chorus though. I said, this is, I never did one kind of like this. I said, and he kept saying inspiration in the song, you're, you're an inspiration, and I said, that's it, right there. That's it. And I found a way to, to record him and reverse the face so I can cancel everything else out in the room. And I just sampled that part and I put it back in the song. And I made that. And I kind of doubled it. And then I, I kind of truncated a bit of the other vocal down and, and detuned it just slightly and, and spread them. 
And then that made, I flew it in every time I thought it felt like it needed to be where that spot was. And that was it. it that, that, that was all it was to that song. How did you um, know it was done? You just knew, I guess, at that yeah, point. Yeah, you know what it was? It's like if I knew I would add something to that song and it started taking away, that's how I always know. If I start adding to a song and it feels like it's taking away from that song, that means either A, I need to do another song, or it's done. Yeah. I suppose after, though, you know, you started having these breakthrough tracks, like, you know, we mentioned the atmosphere of um, inspiration. It seems like your career really started to take off from, you know, 92 to so maybe 95. When did you get a sense, you know, that you was having a real impact internationally? Well, here's the funny part. I mean, I think the thing that made me determine more than anything was that, um, I mean, it is, there's been moments in my life where it's just like, wow, I don't know how I'm in a way keep going. But there would, there would always be like God would always give me a sign that, you know, like he he would let me hear or see something or something would happen in my life that would be like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to give you anything that's too hard for you, but you can you can bypass this and do better. And it happens all the time. This is where where Chaos 623 comes in, which is June 23rd, because I always have something really strange happen every year. I mean, like this year was even crazy. I had a tornado. We don't get tornadoes in New Jersey. It ripped up my backyard. I'm like, I'm, I'm moving, and this is, I'm like, really? What the, you know, odd stuff all the time. But what happened and really made like me really want to keep my career going is that everyone's saying I couldn't. It's impossible. I walked into a record store one day, and my friend Randy was there with, with this other guy. And I guess the person buying records didn't know who I was at all. I'm just a kid walking in, and I just finished Deeper. Like, just finished Deeper. Like, you know, deeper, 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 I'm just, I'm happy, I'm walking down the street, getting ready to go to the record store. Record store, thank God, was like right there. I can go in, go in there. I walk in, and there's these these guys there, and I guess Randy's telling them, you know, what's going on with records, and they, they saw a couple of mine up there. And it's always nice to go into the record shop and see your stuff on the wall. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. It's like, there's one, there's one, you know. And I just had like, I think My My Lover just came out, I was like, there's one. And, and this guy just says, he says, yeah, this is, you know, Gary Chandler stuff, and you know, I'm standing behind this guy. He's like, oh, yeah, I heard he's he's hot at the moment. He's he's supposed to be the hot guy, but he's not going to be around for a while. He's not going to be around. <laughs> it's like, you know, let's just get it now. It's like, you know, he's like, I was like, that just, I ran back to the studio after that. I was like, oh, no, yeah, I'm not le ever leaving the studio. Not, no way. It's like, that, that was it for me. And I was really, after that, I was like, I'm going to make everybody like, no. I, I'm, whatever I do, I'm, I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to keep my momentum, you know. So these kind of things always made me think, you know, ahead. Like the first time I even came to London, the first club I was I was blessed to play was Ministry of Sound. I'd never even been out of the country. You know, 18, I'm flying somewhere. I'm scared to death. Like I didn't know what it would be like. So the night before, I wrote everybody I knew letters, some good, some bad. You know, but I wrote letters to everyone like, oh, I, I, you know, I, I, you're a horrible person. Oh, I loved you. That kind of stuff. So every every time there's something like that, it always kind of kicks me in the butt and says, hey, hey, wake up. You know, you're only as good as your last record. So I've always kind of kept it at that. Well, it is fascinating, though, because a lot of people you did start out with in the 80s, you know, they're not here anymore. So almost yeah. that guy in the record store, if, you, yeah. if he'd pointed to someone else, that might have been true, you know? I'm, I just feel blessed that, that people, you know, are, are into what I do, you know, because it, it never started that way. And I, I think the other reason 
that things have lasted as long as they have is because I really care about people who, you know, listen to what I'm saying. I don't, I don't just make a record up and say, oh, I'm going to make money off this and do that kind of thing. Every record I've ever done has something to do with my life, even down to the, the last one I did, which is Who's Afraid of the Dark? And that comes from me and my son playing hide-and-go-seek in my basement. He likes to turn the lights off and run around in the dark, and his sister's scared of the dark. You know, he'll turn the lights off, off and my, my daughter will turn the lights back on. Stop, Max, cut it out, and, you know, she'll turn the lights back off. And the way we find each other around the basement is that he'll like bang on a pipe or something, and I can hear it. And I'm like, okay, I hear you. And they start laughing in the corner and giggling. And then the thing is with me is like I, I like to take all the things that I learn and you know and love and put them into songs, and it has something to do with my life. Otherwise, I don't make a track. I'll leave it alone. I'll go live a little bit and then come back for it. And there's a sound in Who's Afraid of the Dark that sounds like a pipe in the beginning banging. It goes ding, ding, ding. Thing. That's actually my son banging on a pipe. I mic'd it and put it into the track, you know. And then I started showing him like, you know, what's going on with the track, and he, he gets a good laugh out of it. Yeah. And that's really the opposite approach to most dance music producers generally, you yeah, know. I think I think you have to live a little bit. See, the, the fun part is dance music is it's a very honest music. You know, you can tell who's lying when they're making music up. It's like. I have to live something before I make it, and I think that's that's the reason. If you have to care, you have to care about, you know, what you do. You know, you have to care about the people you're putting the stuff out for. You have to be responsible. You know, and I and I'm hoping that some of these things touch people in a positive way, you know, and, and inspire someone to do something better than I did, you know. And I'm genuinely happy to see all my friends do well. I am, you know, and I try to help everybody. I think that that has a, a good you know way to go. You know, and they had no outlet themselves. And I don't want anyone to go through some of the stuff I've gone through. So, you know, I mean, my friends, I, I, I value very much so. And the people that, that play my music and, you know, keep it going, yeah. Or keep the scene going. You know, so that's important to me to, to make sure, you know, if I can in some way help the next generation come in and, and you know, do what they do. And that's something you seem to be really doing with your certainly your new label. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's primarily with a lot of new, younger artists you're, you're working with there. Yeah, Mad Tech is that way. Yeah, Madhouse is just my my baby. That's mm -hmm. my, my start and very soulful, deep, and, and, you know, just heartfelt. They're songs. Mad Tech, I started because I, I met a lot of younger people that I really believe are very talented and they, they need a springboard and a voice to kind of get their music out and you know they need a, a bit of a direction. So I kind of take a lot of people under their wing, under the wing and just just go for it. And you know, if I, I can help them anyway to do what I, I believe in. You know, my, my favorite right now is Voyeur. There's Lola Purple. There's Citizen. I mean, you know, at the time before this even, I remember getting a call in from Stevie from Martinez Brothers. He was like 14, 15 years old. And they just, you know, every once in a while emailed me for like some kind of advice. They met my partner, Dennis. He took them in. They were already, you know, amazing anyway. You know, and that's what happens. Like you just keep, you know, pushing. We all push each other. And to this day, they're like my little brothers and, you know, they edge me on. You know, I, I, we talk mess with each other all the time. We actually started a jazz trio now because they're just that much fun. And, you know, I just, I love the idea of, of the energy that's coming in now. I remember it, it's, it feels the same way when I started. And it's like, okay, you know, they have this wonderful new vision of things. And 
you know, as a perhaps a, an elder statesman of house music, does that keep you fresh? You know, because there's plenty of DJs that started out in the 80s that rely on classics, you know, kind of almost stuck in the past mm -hmm. almost. Is that, is that one way that keeps your eye in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I get a lot of energy from what they do and what they play and all these things. I, I really listen. And I love a lot of the stuff I'm hearing. And I think the biggest thing is everyone always asks me, so what's your favorite time period in house? I'm like, I haven't had it yet. I'm looking forward to the future, like what, what's coming next. And that's what I'm excited about more than anything, the next thing. I've always been excited about what's next. And one party that has certainly brought you to a younger audience would be Circo Loco, which you know, you've had uh, a yeah. strong association with for many years now. How did you first meet the crew there? Oh, that was interesting. It's funny, it circles back to Tony Humphrey somehow. What happened was I wasn't really a big fan of the idea of Ibiza with um, you know bottle service and the way things turned into and shishi and that kind of stuff. And I was approached by Andreas and Antonio and they were getting ready to start Circle Loco again. And they said they want to change the, the house scene or dance scene pretty much in Ibiza and they want to come up with a very signature underground deep house sound. And they, they wanted me to join you know the crew and I, and I kept saying for a minute, like, I don't know, I don't know, I, do it. I don't know anything about Ibiza, I'm not really interested in Ibiza, and, and you know, everybody kept saying, well, maybe you should, you know, do it, and they would tell me how amazing the place was before, and I, I had no idea what Circle Loco was at all. Had you been to Ibiza before? Yeah, you know, I used to do a lot of parties, actually, M2S parties and things yeah. like that, and El Divino earlier than that. I enjoyed it to a point, but not to the point where I, I just had to be in Ibiza, it never, it never occurred to me. That, that that would be you know the way forward for me. I was playing in Italy, and I met up with the guys. They wanted to meet up and explain it to me properly, like just meet. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go. And I had a meeting with them, and we talked. And they, they said the magic word to me. They said, look, we don't have any like you know bottle service stuff going on here. It's not a she-she kind of club. Here's the magic word. We have a big sound system in a red room, no lights or anything. I said... And I kind of looked at him. I said, "What?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "There's no, not even a place to sit. You just you go party, and that's or that's the end." And I said, "What?" So I thought about it. They were serious, so serious to the point where they got Tony Humphreys to do a night at Circle Loco for like a year or something. And I said, "Wow, they're they're not joking around. They're serious." So you know, they invited me to play in for the end of the year. And I said, "Well, yeah, I'll try it. Why not? Let's just see what it is. It can't hurt." I went in, and I just started. That was just me. I just played whatever I could play, the deepest, craziest thing I could play. And at one point, I played "The Sun Can't Compare," this, this Mr. Finger song. And the minute I played, I was outside in the garden. It's just like when they they did the uh, the closing party, and I I couldn't believe what I was looking at. The the sun came out, and this this plane just flew over. Everybody's hands went up. The whole place just erupted. And I, and I just like, what is going on here? Like, I, I need to be a part of this. I, I would absolutely love to do this. And that was it. And I just, I came in. We did a couple parties, you know, off season, different places. And I, and, then, and I met most of the crew. And they just welcomed me in. And we became family after that. I mean, all of us, we're, we all keep in touch. I mean, as you can see from, like, the Chaos Theory album, that those are... Pretty much my, my, my DC 10 family and everybody else who, you know, I've, I've been hanging out with. So that's, you know, we, we just keep the energy with each other. We play each other's stuff. We remix each other's stuff. We always keep in touch with each other, which is like that. 
you know, and it's just been years and years and years and years, and we just watch each other kind of grow, you know. Is it ever a challenge to approach those kind of new gigs without compromising yourself somehow? Yeah, I would, you would never know. I go there and play disco sometimes, and it works. It was like absolutely scary. Like when Donna Summer died, a record I started was I Feel Love, and it just it just started the whole night, like immediately, like it just immediately went off, you know. Or I'll play something like um, Up Jump the Devil. I mean, where, where would you actually hear that anywhere? Like it's an old disco record. But I found a way to throw it in, and they did the whole floor jump thing with it. After a while, you can play anything because they know who you are, and they they, they enjoy your style. After a while, they, we're all there for for our own fun and reasons. We all push each other, you know. We all try to make each other better. There, you know, all of us are like that there. You know, and we all kind of swap if we want to DJ with each other. We kind of just do it, you know. So, um, another party you've had a really big impact over the years um, would be Southport Weekender, which, um, oh, you know, sadly yeah. came to an end this year. Yeah. When did you first get involved with that? Quite early on, I would imagine. Yeah. Funny thing is the first time I went there, uh, I want to say it was 93. It's either 92 or 93. And the first experience I had, but it wasn't actually mine, it was I was going with Arnold Jarvis. And he was singing Inspiration, and it, he looked like he was the captain of the ship, sailing away and with this audience. I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And it's just like, you know, then I met Alex and everybody, and, they, you know, we all kind of got along. And after that, it was just history. I just I kept coming back and kept, you know, and they kept having inviting me back and different parties. And and it, it's just like family, you know. And now, you know, same thing, going to Sunspeed, you know. So, you know, to, to finish it off... I think it'll be back, actually. <laughs> I know how Alex works. I think he's, he's giving it a break. But, yeah, but right now they're, they're concentrating on the sun speed. And it seems to be working out pretty well. They actually bought the club out there. I think it was called Barbarella's. They actually bought that. So it's kind of permanent now. Yeah, that's yeah. and that club's fantastic yeah, as well. it is. It's like an outdoor, amazing yeah, vibe there. And I suppose um, somewhere like Southport is certainly one place, you know, where you could definitely play anything, perhaps even more Soulful House being such a big thing there. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's a love. We all know each other for like 20 years. It's like playing, playing for family in a living room, literally. One thing I also wanted to talk to you about was um, Dennis Ferrer. You know, we, we mentioned him earlier, <laughs> you know. Um, but it sounds like you guys, when you first met, had quite an interesting meeting. We, he was working in an electrical store, right, or something? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. De well, Dennis is my best friend, period. Him and Jerome are like, we're, we're all very, very close. When I met Dennis, Dennis was working at a, a, a music store called Rogue, and he was like, you know, pretty much the man there when it came to like, you know, like vintage gear, and he knew his he knew his stuff, he knew it well, and he was actually doing techno music at the time, and I can't remember, I think it was with Sinewave or something, and he he played me a demo one day, and I was like, um, well, what what what's this about, and um. He says, yeah, I'm just, you know, I was thinking about doing this and I got to go back in the studio and do it and whatever. And I said, well, where are you working at? I can't remember what he said, but he said he couldn't seem to get there or whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I said, if you want to come by, just come by my place. And he says, um, well, where are you? And I says, well, I'm in Union City. He says, no way. I said, why? What he said? He says, I live in Union City. I said, no. I said, where? He says, Bergen Line. I said, no, I'm, I'm from Bergen Line. What are you talking about? I said, Bergen Line and what? And he says, 19th. I said, ah, I live on 14th. I said, whenever you want to come by, just come by, man. Just whenever you're off from whatever this is, just come by. So I'm in the studio with Jerome 
and he comes by, and Jerome is like, why is he coming by here? Da, 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 da. He came by. He never left. Literally, he like he just came and stayed. He like just took over like my couch, just stayed. He lived down the street. He would not go home, and he just stayed. He, he had no idea. I don't think who I was at all or anything I was doing, which was great because it's like okay, cool. Well, you know, just he's here, just hanging out and just learning stuff and whatever. So I went to like since he was still there. Just knew anyone for a while anyway, but I said I'm getting ready to go to go bo- go to Boston and go DJ. And I played this party out there, and I started just playing, you know, really gospel, house music. He wasn't exposed to that kind of stuff. And at one point, I think I was was playing Why We Sing by Kenny Bobian, and he just stood in the middle of the floor with everyone else, and he just, you could see him crying. Like, literally, like, he just, he ran up to me, gave me the biggest hug, and says, you know, he says, this is exactly what I want to do. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life, this, right here. He says, I want this. He says, I want this feeling right here, this, this room, this whole thing. So that was it. He came back to the house, and I had a big enough space where, and I had another room full of gear, just like stuff in the back. And I just, I made a second studio and just let him have like room B, pretty much. And it was it. And we just like, you know, and then I started Sphere, you know, and I, and I figured that would give him a springboard to do what he wants. And that was it. He, he'd make a record or I'd make a record. And then we kind of remix each other's thing. But the best part was, he was the best partner in the world without having a partner because it's like we'd hear each other's stuff from the other room and then we'd try to top each other, you know? So it was always that friendly competition and it was, it was hilarious. Even down to like DJing, he, he, he was never a DJ. So uh, what I did was, and I, I know Dennis has an ego. He, he, you know, I don't know if he'll admit it or not. He'll probably kill me for telling this story, but that's great. My cousin is a hip hop DJ. And she, I mean, she's really, really good. She goes on tour and all this other stuff, but I didn't tell him any of this. And I was into hip-hop, so I was doing hip-hop stuff too as well. So Dennis hasn't, you know, he's really like, he's trying, he's trying with the turntables, just mixing and whatever. So I play this game we called Out. And you have to kind of follow the next person, just like playing basketball or whatever. You follow the next person doing the same routine and, or not, you, you know, you get an O. And, but we, we upped it a little bit. We all had like uh, tequila shots. So anytime somebody would mess up tequila shot, and it was always Dennis. Dennis, so like he would play, I would play, and my cousin, you know, I'd do a routine, and my cousin would do the same exact thing, and then he'd try to mimic it. And I'm like, oh, good, the same thing. And then just by the end of the night, we were just drinking and being silly, but it, it, it got him to the point where he's like, I am never gonna let that happen again. And every day, like religiously, before I even got home from wherever I was, He'd be on the decks like every day, like all day, like picking records, pulling stuff, whatever. Didn't care. Whatever it took, that's what he was going to do. He was never, ever going to let that happen again. <laughs> uh, did it get, ever get to the point, I suppose it must do now, where, you know, you feel like Dennis can give you a run for your money? Is that kind of surprised for yeah, you? Yeah, we kind of, but I like that. I yeah. like that a lot. We always do that. We always kind of kick each other in the butt, though. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I read was that um, what the big kind of tricky kind of learned from you was um about the foot it's always got to be about the the kick drum that's... oh drums are first and foremost it's it's always um people come to dance you got to remember you're making a dance record and i gotta dance on roads and pianos and things just, they might get a hand in the air or something or like someone going yeah it's all about the dancers and what you're going to dance you got to dance to the stuff so the rhythm has got to be right you know the rest is just bass line and drums that's the core that's what gets you moving the baseline keeps the groove. The rest of the stuff you put on top makes it beautiful. 
That's it. That's really it. And what you put to it, as far as a vocal or anything else after that, is is the message. You know? That's what, that's kind of where you go for. And there's probably a bunch of kids who make music listening to this now and wondering how how can I get my kick drums sounding like Kerry Chandler's oh, yeah, right now. There's tons of methods. I mean, the funny thing is, I, I sat and I do this thing every once in a while with Red Bull Music Academy. And, and I can sit and explain it and explain it and explain it. It still comes down to what you pick out. You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. You pick your sounds first. You, you make sure you have the right sounds before you start doing anything. And, and all of these frequencies, they all need space. And that's all you have to kind of keep in mind. Keep, Make sure that each of these things that has a space has a space. You don't want to put a, a, a sine wave sounding kick drum on top of a sound wave sounding bass because it'll cancel each other out. You know, I mean, that's a that's more like a reggae trick. You're gonna have a really solid kick on, you know, over a sine wave bass, and, and vice versa. If you got a, you know, really like an 808 kick, you're gonna have a square wave on top of it. You you never make it on top of that way. And if you have to use filters to move and notch things, then you do it. You know, and then that's that's you know. And the funny thing is, everybody thinks more is gonna give you more sound. That's not necessarily the case. If you want to change, and this is my hint for all of that stuff. If you want to change a sound, you boost it. You boost an EQ. If you want to clean up a sound, you cut it. That's that's really the basics of it. You know, you've obviously been making house music for 30 years and have made some of the greatest records in the genre. Oh, thank but you. I wonder, you know, what keeps dragging you back to it? Because you've obviously made your point with it, you know. like <laughs> <laughs> What keeps bringing you back? I tell everybody this. It's, it's a love. It really is. It's one of those things where... I said to myself, and I, I said I'd walk away the moment I walk in front of a deck and I don't feel the same way I felt when I was a kid standing on a crate playing records. If I don't, if I literally walk up and go, no, this doesn't feel like it's supposed to, I, that's when I stop. And, you know, I have to call them into us and go, I can't no more. That's it. I'm done. It's done. That's, that's it for me. If I don't have any love anymore, it's the same way I walked away from hip-hop. If I don't have the same love I had when I started it, when I did hip-hop, it was... Love for, you know, we all just had crew battles. We weren't running around with guns and stuff. It was like, it was crazy. It's like, you know, we all did party rhymes and, you know, we all battled each other that way. That was the best. You know, we, we battled for gear. You know, we, we DJ for each other's turntables and stuff. We didn't have to worry about somebody coming to, like, beat somebody up or rob somebody or whatever. You know, it was no crew gang stuff. It was, that was, you know, that was no, it was, a you know, fine, okay, you won. I'll win next time and I'll get my mixer back. You know, that's how we kind of did things. But, you know, that that's what it was. My love for that whole thing went out the window. My love for the art form, for, for you know, the rhyme itself, the, the, the way you put things together, it went out the window for me. I, I wasn't about, excuse my expression, you know, hoes and bitches. Hmm. I, that's not, that wasn't where I was coming from. I was coming from more of a, a technical standpoint, you know. It, it was always that way for me. I'd always put something in very complicated or a storyline. When I did stuff like that, even if it was a dark storyline, you know, it was there. But that's where I get house from because I can always write to it. And speaking of writing songs, you know, just one final question. I, I wonder, what do you think's the best house music song? Because you know, you've written so many and you've worked over with so oh, many, wow. so many singers over the years. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> what my, I couldn't say what my favorite was, but but I'll I'll leave it probably with. I would say maybe Get It Off was probably the one because it started, you know, my mindset on creating for my life. And maybe, like, I mean, at one point, maybe the song I did for my daughter, 
because I always thought things are going too well. And she was about three years old at the time, and I wanted to leave her a record to, to tell her how much I loved her. And a typical day that we used to have with us running around the place and, and doing what we typically do on a Saturday when I'm home. So, you know, and that, that's probably my, my two, two, you know, but they always have to have something really, you know, wonderful happen and, or something even sad in my life that happens. It has, it has to be that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't know where to write. I mean, that, and the same thing with even with Arnold's thing. It's like all of this stuff that, that comes out, even with the artists that I work with. I mean, Kenny Bobian, even, his, his song, Reality. When he came to me with the idea of it, he, he's singing about his nervous breakdown he had with his wife. I mean, he really put the words into it. Like, he explained it. So this this is the kind of stuff that that's not only just me releasing. It's just, you know, and... and you know, an out for my friends to get their point across, you know, and their, their, their heart out there. <laughs> 